Greetings again, everyone. Well, we had a wonderful Pentecost weekend over at Lake Gunnersville State Park, just the other side of Huntsville, Alabama, and we had 174 over there on Pentecost, very nice crowd, extremely warm and enthusiastic, and I just don't see how the Bible study weekend could have gone any better. So it's good to be back. We finally got part of our family back from Yugoslavia, and uh, yesterday they got in, and little Daniel David, who is here with us now, he's only about a year and a few months, and he came toddling in, and his grandma's waiting for him, and I have some heads on my wall. The kids are fascinated by heads. I have a big moose head, a couple elk heads, and some deer on the wall, and the children the boys looked at them and said, elk, you know, or moose or something. He'd been away for a solid month, and so he calls her Baka. That's grandma in Yugoslavia. He just now patted me on the knee and says, Baka. Then he pointed over there and says, Michael, telling me that's Michael. So now he's speaking Yugoslavian to us. But he came in the front door, and, and my wife is there, grandma is there, looking happily. Oh, there's Daniel. And he, he walked right past her and says, Moose? <laughs> but it didn't hurt her feelings because he gave her a big hug. But it's wonderful to have him back home and safe and sound. Of course, we prayed about that, and uh, the airplanes made it safely. How many times do people substitute yardstick religion for the commission to the church? How many times do people substitute a calling for form and ceremony? Yardstick religion reached its zenith during Jesus' day. If you'll turn to the fifth chapter of John, you'll find some examples of that. And in the eighth chapter of John, Jesus Christ had healed a young man who was blind. And he had also healed a deaf mute. He had caused a person who had been crippled all of his life to pick up his bed and to walk with it. Well, the yardstick religionists, who were the Pharisees, decided that this was a very, very evil thing to do, especially on the Sabbath, where you were not to do one bit of work. So in the fifth chapter of the book of John, after this was the feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, these verses are, by many manuscripts, somewhat in question. There's a question about whether or not uh, verse 4 is really found in the original manuscripts. It's in the King James, but it's omitted out of some of them. Whether or not they were waiting for an angel to stir the pool, it's debatable. But the story was that there were impotent folk, blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. And I'll skip verse 4 and read verse 5. There was a certain man there that had an infirmity. Thirty-eight years this man was crippled. Now, you can only imagine the bed sores, the emaciated condition in which he had to be. He hadn't walked. You can imagine being a cripple simply lying there for thirty-eight solid years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he'd now been a long time in that situation, he said, Will you be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no one when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. And while I'm coming, another crowds out of the way, steps down in front of me. And Jesus said, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, and took up his bed, and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews therefore said unto him that was cured, It's the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. That's why I say that yardstick religion had reached its zenith, perhaps, during Jesus' day, because that is one of the most inexplicable situations that I can even begin to imagine. 
Wouldn't anyone in this room, that includes me, love to have had the kind of power that Jesus Christ had to help and to alleviate human suffering and sickness? We were coming back from down near Lake Conroe the other day, and there was a three-car accident. We passed a horrible scene along the side of the road. The big trucks were all stopped, and they just barely been able to start getting them some off on the median. They could go around. The accident had occurred only about three minutes before we got there. There were no rescue vehicles there at all. And it will always be imprinted in my mind because it was a three-car vehicle collision, and it was a red car that was just twisted like a pretzel, and obviously somebody was still in it. There were people bending over and dealing with whoever was inside that had to be either dead or grievously injured. The whole cab of a pickup truck was lying upside down in the road, had been torn completely off the vehicle. Another one was sideways with the front all crushed in. And here was a little boy about the size of Daniel sitting over in the grass with a woman there on the ground and another woman partially lying beside him and people standing around. They were doing something with his arm, trying to lave it. And it just so struck me, I was almost in tears and having to keep moving in the traffic. I wanted, with all of my being, to be able to stop that car, walk over there, and to be able to communicate with God and to alleviate that terrible human suffering, those injuries. It is so unimaginable to me that being able to do so would bring criticism by religious leaders who thought that for this man to pick up a little pallet, it was probably just a little straw pallet of some kind, like you might be as a backpacker to roll it up and simply carry it, put it on your back or carry it under your arm. And even doing this, was not lawful on the Sabbath day. Of course, these people dogged Jesus' steps continually. They were like spies. They sought to continually trap him. They wanted to spy on him to see what he was doing. What will he do next that's contrary to our religion and that breaks and is an iconoclastic breaking of our tradition? And so they immediately voiced their outrage. It isn't lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them and he said, He that made me whole... The same said unto me, Take up your bed and walk. And then they asked him, Which is it that said unto you, Take up your bed and walk? And he that was healed didn't know who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Isn't that amazing? And there again, biblical evidence that Jesus Christ was an average, normal, everyday-looking Jew of his time, there was nothing outstanding either about his appearance or his dress that would cause this man to have noticed him. No halo, no long flowing beard and long locks like in the Baptist Bible bookstore, no shepherd's crook, no little lamb, no aura of white, no ethereal mysterious glow projecting from his eyes, common, everyday, ordinary. The man thought it was simply a conversation, would you like to be made whole, meaning could I help you get into the water? Well, yes, I would love to get into the water, but every time I try to, other people crowd in front of me, and I can't get down there very easily, and there's no one to help me. Do you want to be made whole? The man probably thought, does it mean the next time the water is disturbed, if that was the tradition, I will help you go into the water. The man said, oh, yes, you know, why am I here? Of course I want to be made whole. And so Jesus, with a word and the power of God, take up your bed and walk. The man somehow responded because the miraculous Holy Spirit of God put strength in that man's legs and body, and he stood up and just took the little pallet and carried it away. 
Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said unto him, Behold, you are made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come unto you. Oh, then for 38 years the man had been in this condition because of some sin that he had committed. It might have been dietary. We don't know. But there was something that caused that condition, and he had suffered the consequences of that sin. Proves two things. That healing is a divine miracle from God by the power of God's Holy Spirit, and it is also the forgiveness of sin. The man departed and told the Jews it was Jesus, it was Yahshua, probably the way he pronounced it, that made him whole. Therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him. Now, that is the epitome, isn't it? They could not even begin to have that much empathy for a suffering human being. They didn't care about that man, and they didn't care about the fact that he had been made well. They cared everything about their political status and about a teacher who was beginning to woo away and draw away massive attention the love and the adulation of the crowds. They worried because of their status. They worried because of their income, because those people were under the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and they were rigorously taxed by them. They were watched over to make sure that they paid their tithes and the temple tax, which was imposed by the Romans as well. And, of course, their status depended upon the people. Can you imagine, literally, being in a meeting where these people were discussing murder. They were discussing how can we kill him. They wanted to do it, quote, legally, meaning stone him to death, and pretend that they were doing it according to their law. But there was no doubt in their minds that the people who caucused together and decided they wanted to slay Jesus Christ. Why? Because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Were they really outraged that he had somehow defiled the Sabbath? Let's assume that they really thought that he defiled the Sabbath. What would be their own teaching according to the Old Covenant, according to the Old Testament, with which they were very familiar, when someone had done something which meant that they had broken the law? Does not even the Old Testament talk about mercy and forgiveness? Read the Psalms of David, and there are many statements even in the book of Deuteronomy. And very, very early on in the Torah, or the first five books of the Bible, that talk about forgiveness. No, they did not have a little bit of forgiveness or mercy. They had zero empathy. They had only the concept of their own status, and they were actually trying to slay Jesus Christ because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath. This is a way in which some people mistakenly read the Bible. Back many years ago, in about 1975, there were a number of people, three of them were leaders among them, and I won't go into all of this, but they were over in England, and they decided this meant what it said. They decided that Jesus broke the Sabbath. Not that it was the point of view of the Pharisees that he had broken the Sabbath, not that it was their tradition that he had broken, but that Jesus had broken the Sabbath. Now, how did he break the Sabbath? Oh, he was an accomplice because he told the man to pick up his pallet and walk. And the man had no business carrying that terribly heavy pallet. And so some people would read the Bible 
Well, because Jesus broke the Sabbath. Therefore, Jesus clearly set himself against the Sabbath. And I'm talking about leaders, including a couple of ministers in the Church of God who had been ministers for about 15 or 20 solid years, who decided on the basis of this and some other scriptures they came up with that Jesus Christ had abolished the Sabbath. And what was amazing, some of those very people were some of the most ultra-right-wing, yardstick religionists that I have ever known. I told years ago how I discovered that there were four-star monitors, three-star monitors, two-star monitors, and one-star monitors in the dormitories at Ambassador College. And a four-star monitor was over the entire dormitory, and a three-star monitor was over the entire floor, and a two-star monitor was over a certain number of rooms, and a one-star monitor was only over his own room, his own buddy. So you had this elaborate spy system where everybody watched everybody else to make sure they didn't leave cookie crumbs on the divan, didn't leave their soft drink out on the furniture, or that they got into the prayer booth exactly on time, or that they got up and went to calisthenics or whatever. But they reported if they were out beyond curfew, and they had to sign out. There was a sheet where the males or the females in various dormitories, when they wanted to go out with some other students or something like that, they had to ask the four-star monitor if they could go out, and he or she would tell them what time they should come back in. Well, I abolished the system when I discovered how bad it was, but one of the gentlemen who was responsible for this movement to do away with the Sabbath was one of the very people who put that system in. So on the one hand, they got deeply into yardstick religion, exact lengths of women's skirts, the exact length that a man's sideburns could be, whether or not you could wear clothing that was of any bright color the kind of a color you ought to have on your automobile, and all these various things. Uh, whether or not a man ought to wear, like, for example, the uh, Rush Limbaugh No Boundaries tie collection would have been absolutely prohibited during those days. Nobody could have worn a, a loud, screaming tie like that. They would have had to have been very, very conservative. I know because I still have some of mine from that period. No, I'm just kidding, but it was unbelievable. And then I said, when I realized that these people were trying to do away with the Sabbath, I said, I got whiplash watching those people go by. They were on the far right, extreme on the right, and then all of a sudden they were over here on the left as an extreme liberal wanting to do away with the Sabbath and with God's laws. I find that yardstick religion can crop up in any group over any given period of time in a very short period of time, really. There are some other examples of this. If you'll turn over to the, let me see here, the ninth chapter of the book of John is the case of the man who was blind from his birth, and the disciples wondered who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind. And Christ said that this man had not sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. Chapter 9 and verses 1 through 3. Now in verse 4, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, the night cometh when no man can work. And I think that applies to our age and in the future as well, to work the works of God while we can, because there are times coming when God's work and any organized preaching of the gospel is going to be put down and out. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, 
and anointed the eyes of the blind man with clay. And he said, Go wash in a pool of scent, or Siloam, which is by interpretation scent. He went his way, therefore, and washed and came seeing. He made a clay, which indicates to me it may have been cataracts. And as the clay dried, it would have had the action of dislodging it, but Christ had healed him. Now he wanted him to wash away this matter from his eye. So he went and he washed. And perhaps the washing is also symbolic of God's Holy Spirit, the washing of the water by the Word. The neighbors, therefore, and they which had before seen him that was blind, said, Is not he, this he, that sat and begged? So apparently, day by day, he just sat at the city gate, and like you've seen in some of the old Middle Eastern movies, you know, they say, Alms for the love of Allah, alms for the love of Allah, and they're blind. And there are many nations in the world, including India and Bangladesh and some of the Middle Eastern countries, where mothers gouge out one eye, and sometimes both eyes, of their children, so they will be blind beggars. And what they beg and what little bits and dribs of money that comes into them will be brought home to help with the household. That's horrible to contemplate, but it's true. It has happened. The neighbors, therefore, saw that this was the man who was, beg who was begging and was blind, and they said, this is he. And others said, well, he's like him. And finally he said, I'm he. I am the former blind beggar. Therefore they said unto him, how were your eyes open? He answered and said, A man that is called Jesus made clay and anointed mine eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed and received sight. And they said unto him, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. So Jesus did not seek glory. He didn't hang around with the person and say, Guess what I just did? There was none of that motive and none of that motivation in his heart or mind. They brought him to the Pharisees. Now you're going to find out what this is all about, so what you do is take this person to the professionals, take him to the religious leaders, and have him interrogated and find out what happened. It was the Sabbath day, uh-oh, that Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. He did a little stirring action. And that was a lot of work, right? Just sort of like that, a little stirring action. And then he just gently put it on the man's eyes. It was on the Sabbath day that he did this. And the Pharisees asked him how he'd received his sight. He said unto them, He put clay, and I washed, and I do see. One of the Pharisees said, This man is not of God, because he keepeth not the Sabbath day. Unbelievable when I look at the examples here in God's Word. And there's got to be a reason. This is not put here just so we would understand that Jesus healed, because there are many, many examples of Christ's healing. Peter's wife's mother was sick, and he simply touched her, and she got up. There are many other cases of healings that were almost casual in a sense. They are briefly mentioned. But these take up a good segment of a portion of the Gospel of John. And there's got to be a reason why all the details are given here. How can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? Oh, was he a sinner? Why, no, he was the Son of God. Jesus Christ of Nazareth, absolutely perfect. He had never sinned even in thought, let alone in deed. Were there those who nodded their heads sagely? Yes, he's a sinner. Yes, there were. Because, you see, in society, and in our society today, it's the same. You witness a lot of the things you watch on evening news and television. All you've got to do is say it. In our society, especially the media, says, guilty as charged, now, it's supposed to work the other way around, isn't it? Innocent until proven guilty. Isn't that the way the law reads? 
not according to our society and not according to the media. Guilty until proven innocent. And when proven innocent, you're not really innocent because you were charged. And therefore, you will never live it down, right? That's the way it works. That's the way it works with major, well-known sports figures and other figures, nationally known people. So, they said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them. They said to the blind man, what do you say of him? What's your opinion that he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. But the Jews didn't believe him that he had been blind. Now, that was the next excuse. Let's just deny the whole thing. It's all a fake. He wasn't really blind. He was faking it. It isn't even the same man. So they called his parents. Now, this is interesting. As I've said in the past, and I've gone through these passages, here is a son, a beloved son, just like any of your children, that was nurtured by these parents, but he was blind. And you've got to simply put yourself in that picture and imagine all the difficulties of raising a blind child, of teaching him to count the steps when he's once able to walk, to keep from bumbling into things and stumbling and falling, how many times he must have injured himself, how many times he was in danger of losing his life or of, being, or of having a broken bone or something because he's stumbling around and he's blind. They had to teach him exactly how to get from his bed to the place where he would go to the outdoor facilities, no doubt. They had to teach him, and he was all of his life going around, blackness, blind, couldn't see, and you've got to deal with the fact that here are parents that now their son is able to see them for the first time. They are the parents who could remember back when he was a little boy of taking his hands and saying, I'm your daddy, in their language and taking his little hands and letting his little hands feel the contours of their face. This is their little boy. He's grown up. He's a man now. He's a mature man. He had never seen the faces of the parents. But they were in the church. They were in the Pharisaical religion. And they were in and under the control of the Pharisaical religion. That control so reached into their lives, into their hearts and their minds, that they were unable to express a normal range of emotions. And what would have been the normal emotion? Why, weeping and tears of joy and, and big hugs. The man would have been probably tearfully embracing both of his parents and saying, Oh, now I see you. He would have said, Oh, look, that's a tree. Oh, look, there's a bird. Oh, look over there. I've heard them, but that's a donkey. He would have been trying out his eyesight. Can you imagine seeing for the first time in your life and trying to put words to the objects and the people and the animals that you saw and beginning to enjoy what is coming in your brain now through your eyes that you hadn't enjoyed before? None of that was allowed to occur. None of the normal range of emotions could be expressed between parent and child or child and parent. So the parent said, well, we know this is our son. Still haven't embraced him. Nothing has happened. And we know that he was born blind. Be careful, Maud. Don't say anything to upset these people. But by what means he now seeth, we know not. Or who hath opened his eyes, we do not know. He's of age. Ask him. He shall speak for himself. These words spoke his parents because they feared the Jews. Why did they fear the Jews? Because they thought the Jews what? They thought the Jews controlled their salvation. 
They thought the religious leaders had something to do with their eternal life. And that was their mistake. And once people make that mistake and they think that there is any other human being, any force, any organization, any church, any agency, and certainly any one man that has the power and the say-so over their spiritual condition and over their direct spiritual access to God the Father, and of course they denied Christ, but as we know, to Jesus Christ the Son, then they have given away their spiritual sovereignty and they have totally given themselves into the power and the control of some other force or some other organization or some other man. Let him speak for himself. These words spake his parents because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Those were words that have terrified and frightened people to death for about 19 years. I will put you out. Well, that means that you will be cut off. Now, the Roman Catholic Church has, of course, the power not only to put out an individual, to excommunicate is the term they use. That way it means that he cannot have communion or any communication. He cannot have fellowship. To disfellowship, absolute synonym, means the same thing. But they also have the power of interdiction, which is the Pope deciding that an entire nation, because its particular leader has offended the Pope or the so-called Holy See, in some manner or another. And so the souls of all the people in that entire nation are going to go to hell for all eternity unless that leader is either removed, assassinated, unless he recants or repents or changes whatever it is he's done and apologizes abjectly to the Pope. And that has been used in past years. It has been used in churches that I know very well, know a very great deal about. So... They were so afraid because they thought they were going to be put out. Therefore, his parents said, He's of age, ask him. Then again they called the man who was blind and said, Give God the praise because we know this man is a sinner. He answered and said, Whether he be a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I know, that whereas I was blind, now I see. I wonder if there isn't a deeper spiritual connotation there as well. Whereas I was blind, listening and giving in with my parents to your teaching, now I see the Savior of the world, and I see spiritually, but he saw with his eyes, and that was a fabulous blessing. What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you already, and you wouldn't listen to me. Wherefore, would you hear it again? Will you also be his disciples? I love that. He was able to get a little thumb in the ribs there, give him a little dig, kind of upset them a little bit. A little bit of the Elijah temperament coming out. Some people don't like that. They say, oh, you shouldn't make fun of a religious leader. Oh, well, all right. Poor old Elijah had it all wrong. Then they reviled him. Oh, yeah, here's your old, tired, dog-eared human tradition. When logic breaks down, when you can't answer logically, you just attack the person. You just say, well, you dirty so-and-so, and it's all gone then. I mean, there's no more rationality, no more logic. They just reviled him. They said, you're his disciple, but we are Moses' disciples. We know that God spoke unto Moses. As for this fellow, we don't know where he came from. The man answered and said, well, here's a marvelous thing. You, you're the religious leaders, you represent God. You're supposed to have the power of God. You couldn't heal me. I was blind all these many, many years. You couldn't do a thing about it. 
You don't know where he came from, and yet he has opened my eyes. That's, there's a lot said in that statement when you look at the factors here and to whom he addressed that statement. Now, we know that God heareth not sinners, but if any man be a worshiper of God and doeth his will, him he heareth. Since the world began, it has not been heard that any man opened the eyes of one that was born blind. That's true. First time in all of history, and there have probably been very precious few since that time. Very, very few. If this man were not of God, he could do nothing. Pearls, gems of absolute wisdom and of unvarnished truth. They answered and said, You were altogether born in sin, and do you teach us? There you go. I've seen that happen. Do you know who you're talking to? I'm a minister. Oh, but if you'd use the word, you know who you're talking to? I'm a servant. Well, then get down there and get me some beans. I'm hungry. You know, well, then serve me, you know. Get me that chair if you're a servant. But that isn't the way it worked. It, it worked to where little by little by little, the word minister meant pastor general. And then I guess there were colonels and privates, and there was private enterprise, and, you know, there's... Anyway... He said, if this man were not of God, he could do nothing. And then they said, you were born in sins, and you teach us. And they cast him out. They ejected him. They threw him out. So when Jesus found him, he said, do you believe on the Son of God? And he said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? And Jesus said, you have both seen him, and it is he that talks with thee. And he said, Lord, I believe. Well, I should think so. Anybody who had been healed so miraculously. And he worshipped him. And I imagine he got down and, and maybe grabbed Jesus' hand. I would imagine he'd put his hand to his cheek and thank him with tears. Perhaps he tried to embrace him. I hope he did. But he certainly adored him and he worshipped him and he was just filled with thanksgiving. What an example of yardstick religion. And how often it is that we see people substituting the commission that Jesus Christ gave to his church for style. They exchange a calling for a pose. They exchange work for a posture. There are now dozens of little organizations, and there are people meeting in small groups, and it's fine, there's nothing wrong with meeting together so long as there is a greater goal in mind, so long as the meeting together is not an end in itself, but a means to an end. If it is an end in itself, and if the fellowshipment on the Sabbath, the fellowshipping together of brethren, is just the way of life into which you have sunk to where you're just like any other good, decent, Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, or Lutheran in the community, and it's something you do. You may take nurses' training on Tuesday, may have the bowling league on Thursday, and you go off and you fellowship with a few people on the Sabbath, if you're a Sabbath keeper, and then you maybe get out and go to a picnic or go fishing on Sunday, and then you work on Monday through Friday, and then you go back and you fellowship. But that's all. That's it. That's where it starts, where it stops. That's the end of it. I've talked for many, many years about playing church, and people insist on misunderstanding that. But I think in what I'm saying to you today, it will become a little clearer. Substituting form, ceremony, and just a kind of a country club social experience for a vast commission that is so huge and so great and so awesome that most of us cannot grasp it. 
I should imagine there were conversations when Prince Charles, and no matter what you think of his character or the royal family, but when he was a little boy growing up, when Queen Elizabeth would put him on her knee and would say, you were born to be a prince. Can you say prince to your mama? He'd say, prince. She'd say, that's right. You're going to be a prince. Let me tell you what a prince is. And time after time after time, no, son, a prince doesn't chew with his mouth open. No, son, a prince does not use those words. You were born to become a king. Someday you're going to sit on the throne of England. And as he grew, and as he grow, uh, grows and learns to read and learns to study British history and the history of that royal family and so on, there were incredible lessons that he had to learn. Now, no matter what people think and all of the scandals, and of course the British press is the world's worst, along with the Australian and the American and others, for tearing down their leaders and their royalty. But there have been an awful lot of problems in that family, and I'm not talking about that. So maybe if you can pick a better example of a family that you think is a little more respectable, that would be all right, too. My analogy is that you and I, according to the Word of God, according to the calling of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and according to the prophecies that he lays out, have been called to become what? Kings and princes, priests, judges, the enforcers of the law. Now, when you think about it in really modern terms, what if you had had the sole decision to make concerning Timothy McVeigh? What would you have decided? I wouldn't even want to get into arguments because there may be some few people who would still decry the right of the state as a result of laws that eventually were overturned. You know, for many, many years in the United States, it was absolutely illegal as a result of the laws that were passed by Congress to put anyone to death for capital murder. But eventually that was rescinded, and now Texas is leading the country, as you've seen, in putting people to death. Very, very few, comparatively, to those who deserve it, but there are still a lot of people on death row awaiting it who are mass murderers, kidnappers, who strangle, rape, bludgeon little old ladies to death in their homes. I think there was another execution carried out night before last, as I recall. I, I didn't see much about that, but here in the state of Texas. You have to ask yourself, what would you study? What would you want to learn? How would you prepare to feel that you were qualified to judge whether or not Timothy McVeigh was guilty, and if he were guilty, what would you decide should be done to him? Now, I would study, first and foremost, the Bible. I would study the Word of God, and I would see exactly what God says should be done to murderers, especially mass murderers, who reason you, whoever you are, some anonymous unnamed people in the BATF, the FBI, CIA, or whoever else he's mad at, killed them meaning some other people, he doesn't know who they are, but he read about them, David Koresh and the people down there in Waco. Therefore, I, because I am who I think I am in my demented, turbulent, distorted, weird, twisted, stupid, egocentric, mental aberration, I will blow to bits 168 people and all these poor little children and babies. I will cause massive injuries. One of these little kids has already had something like nine operations. I will cause absolute devastating heartache and the most incredible blow to just savagely blast its way into the hearts and minds of thousands of people, of the families and loved ones of these victims. I will do that because you, whoever you are, 
did something bad to them, whoever they are, so I will kill these people over here. Well, another thing, if you had the power of God, what would you know about the bombing? Everything. Wouldn't you? You'd be able, because Christ was able to see, he knew what was in man, and you wouldn't worry about somebody sitting there absolutely with no remorse, stoically, listening to all of this evidence, just, just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of bits of evidence, and people coming through there and talking about all of it, and the truck, and the rental agreement, and the bomb-making material, and being right on the spot where he could get the fuel, being right up there, and even exploding bombs, reading the actual blueprint for it in the book, doing all of the things that they went through. But ask yourself that question. How often, and this may be a, an embarrassing question for us to ask because it's not something we think about, how often during the week, in any given week, as the Sabbath is approaching, would you ever think that the Sabbath day is like a training session, like another session of a very classified classroom where you are going to drink in of technical information which is going to help you become the kind of a judge who would know when you need to exact punishment for a terrible crime and when you need to dispense mercy and forgiveness, and would know under what circumstances you should do either one. I don't think most of the time we think of our calling in terms of preparing to be a king of being told by Jerusalem above, the mother of us all, the church of God, by analogy, that we are a group of little princes and princesses, that we're to be kings and queens, or we're to be kings and priests with Christ in the millennium, and to make decisions involving massive numbers of millions of human beings as to whether they're going to live or whether they're going to be put to death. I had to decry a decision made yesterday by a judge that kept us on CNN until I had to leave. He was do going through all this lecture about how it hurt him and everything. And I'm sorry, but I don't quite agree with that decision, and I'll just share it with you briefly, for whatever it's worth. Three teenagers, you've heard it by now, plucked a stop sign out of an intersection. It was well known to have a stop sign there. So the people coming on one way would just go right along with no fear. The cars coming the other way are going to stop. And I believe three other teenagers lost their lives as a result in a terrible, bloody crash. These three are so utterly brokenhearted and distraught, they're standing there weeping. Talk about remorse and their families. They can't live with what they had caused. But the judge, after this long, long lecture, handed these young teenagers 30 years in prison apiece. And after 15 years, they can be on parole. Fifteen years. I'm sorry, but I wonder what good does that do? Because it has everything to do with motive and with the degree of the crime. I would think because of a rotten, little, capricious bit of vandalism. That's horrible. And the consequences were unusually horrible because three people lost their lives in a bloody wreck. And so grieving families lost their loved ones. There is a difference, and I think there would be a different kind of justice that could be meted out. To me, I think it would be having to do with not only heavy fines, but having to do with actually working for those families. And for a number of years, being like an indentured servant to serve the families that they so terribly destroyed. And for a number of years, to clean the house and mow the yard and... And, and paint it and, and run errands and to do everything and that every bit of money they could earn would come back to that family. 
and then eventually their debt would be paid. But to me, I'm sorry, that's just the way my mind works. Now, I may be so far off, and I'm not telling you that's the way your mind ought to work. I'm not telling you that's dogma of the church. I'm just saying that O.J. Simpson's out there running around Florida playing golf, all right? That's, that's where I am, the way I look at it. And here are these three teenagers are going to go to prison. And I've been inside prisons to visit people there. We have a lot of people that write to us. Every time we have our prayer session in there, we have any number of letters from prisoners in jail, including murderers and people that have committed atrocious crimes. I once sat on the lawn with a whole group of women in a women's territory, a prison right down in Chico, California, with a woman who had actually stabbed to death several of her own children with a butcher knife. And all she could do was complain about the treatment she was getting in there. I know what's in there. I know what they do. I know about the drugs. I know about the Mexican mafia. I know about all the things that go on inside of prisons. I don't even want to talk about. They're hideous, horrible places to be. And the last thing in the world they ever accomplish is rehabilitation. They do not turn hardened criminals or even casual criminals into good, decent, flag-waving, mom-and-apple-pie American citizens. No, no. They do the exact opposite. They take casual criminals and turn them into hardened, bitter criminals, and large percentages of them, once they get out, end up going right back in. Only a small percentage, as they say, are able to go straight. I want to go to Isaiah, the fifth chapter, and take a look at a little song that was supposed to have been sung by the prophet. I don't know if he ever put a tune to this or not, but there are six woes listed in this chapter that pretty much define human nature as we see it active all around us all the time. Now, I will sing to my beloved a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. Maybe he said, my well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it and took out the rocks thereof and got it ready to till. Oh, I'm kidding. I better not go on with that or make up a song here. But it is an analogy. It is a biblical metaphor, and it tells you what the vineyard is. The vineyard is Israel. And Jesus Christ gave a similar example of the husbandman that allowed the vine dressers to take care of the property and went away into a far country to get for himself a kingdom and to return. And this is God's vineyard, which is Israel. And it was in a very fruitful hill. And he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof. And in that land, just like in the Normandy area uh, that the people had to fight over those hedgerows, they would take the rocks that they gathered out of the soil and put them up and make little hedges and fences around the property. So they gathered it out, planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein. So like a place to store the grapes and crush the grapes and hold the vats and put them on their leaves and make the wine right there in the middle of the grape uh, vineyard. He looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, between me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I didn't do in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes. And now go to, or go on now, and I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof that protected it, from thieves and robbers and wild animals and intruders, and it shall be eaten up, and break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste, it shall not be pruned, nor cultivated, digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. 
But I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, smite it with drought. For the vineyard of the Eternal of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression. And that is said to be in the margin a scab, but it just means terrible blight or oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry. Woe unto them that join house to house, that lay field to field, till there be no place that they may be placed alone, or maybe it really means where they can be alone, where they can be by themselves in the midst of the earth. I know an example of that, a man that is now dead, who was a multimillionaire, made a tremendous fortune, worth a tremendous amount of money. And over where I live, there was a whole lot of unplanted property around my house, eight acres in all. And eventually this gentleman, before he died, I guess just as a hobby, decided that he would just plant that property. And so he took property where there should have been five lots, or maybe only four, and divided it up into six lots, real long and real narrow, so that the houses would be right up against each other. And if you had an argument in your bedroom, the people next door are probably going to be hearing it in their living room or whatever. Well, it didn't work out that way quite, but in any event, as the years went by in that development, which he had the money to provide because he could plant it, subdivide it, build the roads, put in all the sewage systems and all that stuff, and then go ahead and build some spec houses on it and make more money. But it's just an example that I know of personally, and there are examples by the hundreds of thousands all over our country of this, where they join house to house and field to field till there be no place that they may be placed alone in the midst of the earth. In mine ears, says the eternal of hosts, of a truth, many houses shall be desolate, even great and fair, without inhabitant. That's going to come on our country eventually. Yea, ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath, about six gallons, perhaps. So that would not be very much. Get about six gallons of wine out of ten solid acres of grapes. And the seed of an omer shall yield an ephah, which is about a tenth of a bushel. Very small amount, a little sack full of grain. Woe unto them, here's the first of the woes. No, the second, I'm sorry. Woe unto them that join house to house, the first one. Here's the second. Woe unto them that rise up early in the morning, that they may follow strong drink, that continue until night, till wine inflame them. Because the, the Word of God says that strong drink, of course, perverts judgment. And people are not themselves. Right now, as we are seated here in this room on the Sabbath, how many examples do you suppose there are across the United States of husbands who are abusing, beating, screaming at, maybe even just taking their fist and hitting their wives? Well, there are probably a number up into the many, many thousands right now. And after dark and late at night and in the wee hours after they come back from all the honky-tonks, it gets worse, doesn't it? How many letters have we had from women that talk about their husband being an alcoholic or when he drinks he gets violent or when he drinks he's not the same person and normally he's a loving person but then he drinks. Now he's a different kind of a person. We hear it all the time. There are millions of marriages that have been absolutely devastated as a result of that. And here is a biblical condemnation of alcoholism. No one drinks in the morning if he's merely a social drinker that likes to have a little drink now and then, but gets up in the morning and starts hitting the booze the first thing, here's a person who is completely an alcoholic and whose entire mind and personality and character has been changed as a result of 
imbibing alcohol. So they continue until night till wine inflame them. And the harp and the viol, the tabret, the pipe and the wine, in other words, a lot of music, well, don't go there. But if you're like me, you nearly break your thumb with the remote control on your TV trying to get that mute to cause that, ma that music to shut up, including even music that they use to advertise automobiles and sports shoes. I can't stand it. All the bright kaleidoscopic lights and the loud screaming noise and the music sound like somebody took a grand piano and kicked it off a ten-story building and took a recording of it when it hit the ground. It's a screech or a wail or a noise or a beat, but it's not music. And if you were to see the things that they are doing these days, i got to share a little private insight with you. I didn't do it. I'm so thankful because a lot of things I did, which I'm very, very ashamed of, including these rotten tattoos on the arms. I'd give anything to get rid of. But when I was at Miramar, before I got on board the ship, it began to become a really in thing back then. This was in 1948. Young people listen. To pierce your ears and wear an earring. 1948. Some of the guys actually did it, and they would go ashore, and if the SP didn't find them, they'd be around wearing one silver earring, just like old uh, John whatever, swashbuckler the private, or the pirate, rather, with a parrot on his shoulder, and they would have an earring in their ear. Well, my wife and I were seeing recently a thing on TV that showed one of these New York discos, and not only are a lot of the women now smoking these great big stogie cigars, young women smoking great big old cigars, but they're putting rings through their tongues, through their navels, and in all parts of their body, their lips, they got holes in their lips, they got four to five earrings in their ears, and then when they walk around, they just make a jangling noise like a gypsy pot peddler. It's unbelievable. And there's a scripture on that we can read here in a minute, perhaps. But uh, have you seen some of this stuff? You know, you live in the real world. You cannot believe that. We were at a restaurant here in Tyler not long ago, and a man that uh, actually, from whom we bought our first office, was there with a group of people and came over and showed me and told me, look at that girl over there, she was wearing a bare midriff, and here was a ring sticking out of her navel. And I thought, that's got to be one of the tenderest parts of your, bio of your body. How in the world can you stand anybody to drill a hole through your navel? Just, I couldn't stand it. But it's unbelievable. Therefore, my people are gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. You've got to really be stupid to put a ring in your navel. I mean, it's just got to be stupid. Their honorable men are famished, and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore, Hades, hell, this is Sheol in the Hebrew, hath enlarged herself, the grave, and opened her mouth without measure, and their glory, their multitude, and their pomp, and he that rejoiceth shall descend into it. They're all going to die. I said way back years ago in the age of the hippie rebellion, the one thing is going to happen to these people who want to violently overthrow the status quo is that they will eventually become the proprietors of the new status quo. And eventually then others will come along and try to overthrow their new status quo. But what's really going to kill them all is, in their rebellion against the older generation, someday that's them. They're going to be the older generation. Guess what? This is 1997. That was 1960. That was 37 years ago, and they were 25 and 21 and 19 then. Now they're the older generation, aren't they? So it happened. And now they can look back and wonder about that period of time when they ran around with their VW Beetles with the peace sign on it and smoked, as they said, Mary Jane. And the mean man shall be brought down, and the mighty man shall be humbled, and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled. That'll be the day. 
But the eternal of hosts shall be exalted in judgment, and God that is holy shall be sanctified in righteousness. Then shall the lambs feed after their manner, and the waste places of the fat ones shall strangers eat. That is, the huge mansions that you see, you shake your head, you wonder, where does all the money come from? When you see the way many people are able to live today, you know, drive into communities in Tyler, I can show you what I'm talking about over at Holly Tree. You just look at all these absolute mansions, great, big, huge, five and six thousand foot square, square foot homes that look like colonial palaces, and you wonder, where does the money come from? And it's that way all over the United States of America. It's no wonder some of the third world countries think that everybody in America is rich. Woe unto them that draw iniquity, that's sin, with cords of vanity, and sin as if, as if it were with a cart rope, like they are dragging sin on a cart behind them that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. There is the same old tired excuse. God has gone way off somewhere. Everything goes according to cycles. Well, if some big thing is going to happen, let him get busy and do it. Well, I'll tell you, he is going to, and I have a, has have a very strong opinion that when Europe does come together, first it's going to fall apart, then it's going to come together out of the ashes of the time it falls apart, when the global economy falls apart, I don't know necessarily that the ten nations that are prophesied in God's Word are going to grow out of the present move toward a united Europe, because I've never been really convinced that Britain is going to remain as a part of it. But if the collapse occurs and military dictatorships begin to arise, and then if that pair of Arab mosques are bulldozed out of the way, and if another major war breaks out in the Middle East, and if a European power at the behest of the Pope moves into the Middle East, then I think that there are going to be 20, 30, maybe more million Americans out there who will remember having heard hundreds of radio broadcasts for over three, four, five decades that this exactly was going to take place. And I think a lot of little splinter groups and a lot of people who are trading form for the work and just waiting it out as tired old Christians are going to snap awake too and wonder if we shouldn't get on our knees and call out to God and wonder whether or not we are in any way responsible for having pulled back from God's work. But when those things begin to happen, they won't anymore say, well, let him do all of this and draw nigh that we may know it. Verse 20, woe to them that call evil good and good evil. All you've got to do is listen to the government anymore, it seems like. You know, sometimes you get so tired of it. I just learned this morning that even though I cook a backyard barbecue, and I've got one of those little grills that we got a few months ago, we finally decided to do that so we could enjoy a backyard barbecue from time to time. And just after I got it, I learned that the environmentalists were actually trying to lobby Congress to get a law passed to outlaw them so that the federal government would tell me I've got to go throw mine on the junkyard because it's against the law to barbecue a hamburger in my own backyard. Because that smoke pollutes. It's going to pollute the landscape. Any of you hear about that proposed legislation? That was very, very recently, just this morning. I heard and I saw them cooking hamburgers on a backyard grill. said, you may think, that if you cook it till it's gray in the middle, it's good to eat. But the government says it is not. That you may still not have killed all the potential salmonella and the viruses and the bacteria, whatever. So what you really need, I don't know if the government's manufacturing them, selling them or not, is a meat temperature gauge. And you stick that in there, and when it gets to a certain temperature, you know you killed all the little cooties. But before that time, 
you may end up eating something that is bad for you. So the federal government comes along and says to me, you will buckle up, you will eat what I tell you and drink what I tell you. If you smoke, I'm going to put you in jail or fine you or whatever. They'll probably be after our coffee. We still enjoy coffee in the morning. One of these days, Al Gore and the rest of them, all the environmentalists are going to say that your aisles of Langer hands are sinking in a pool of caffeine and they're going to prove that coffee is addictive. And probably people who have gone in with some kind of a ruptured spleen will say, coffee did it. And then the states will all get on the board and they'll have multiple hundreds of billions of dollars that they will sue Folgers for, and Folgers will pay off because of all these ruptured spleens and the sunken aisles of Langerhans. You know where those are as a result of coffee. So they're going to say, you will live healthily, and you will live long, and you will live until I can get you on Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security so that I can take care of you for the rest of your life. That's the federal government telling you that's the way you're supposed to live your life. And the people that are in federal government are those described in the 59th chapter of the book of Isaiah. But he says they put good for evil and evil for good. And that's exactly the way things are portrayed to us today. Every time the government comes up with some new law or we hear of some new thing coming out of the court systems, we just shake our heads and look at each other and say, I don't believe that. It's such an incredible affrontery to anybody that has any knowledge of God's Word whatsoever. It's all backwards. They put darkness for light and light for darkness. They put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. They know best. They know what's good for you. All of them in the Congress and the Senate and the White House, of course. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, and men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, that's bribery, and take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble, and the flame consumes the field, or the, uh, the chaff, so their root shall be as rottenness, and their blossom shall go up as dust, because they have cast away the law of the Eternal of hosts, and despise the word of the Holy One of Israel. Turn back just a couple of chapters, and it says in verse 12 of chapter 3, As for my people, children of their oppressors, and women rule over them. And then is the description of the daughters of Zion. And every time, I don't know why, most news is not worth watching anymore. Thankfully, Fox has come on with nonstop news, which is helping to kind of balance out CNN, which has kind of gone astray a little bit. And I'm not quite sure about the lady that married the owner of CNN and about what some of their political leanings are anyway. But now that Fox is on, you've got a little more to watch. At least we do in the cable that we get where we are. But they seem on Good Morning America to have a magazine type, type of a format. Now you get a little vignette of news and the rest of it is about all the movies coming along. But invariably they got a style show. And they've got these women that are built about like a two iron in your golf bag and wearing this little slim dress that they have on backwards, little straps like that, and little silk and stuff, and they walk. They got the craziest walk you've ever seen. And they, they meant, well, here, here they are described right here. Verse 16, Moreover, the Eternal says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, and walk with stretched forth necks and wanton eyes. Somebody once thought that the word wanton because it says in the margin that it's deceiving with their eyes that they had to outlaw any kind of eyeshadow. 
And uh, I don't know about that, but nevertheless, uh, that was the idea, to call attention to the eyes and to have wanton eyes. Walking and mincing as they go, and of course the men are doing that nowadays as they march on the White House steps, aren't they? Having mince-ins. You've heard of sit-ins? Well, they have mince-ins now. Making a tinkling with their feet. They wear little rings and bells and things on their toes. Therefore, the Eternal will smite with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Eternal will discover their secret parts. In that day, the Eternal will take away the bravery of their tinkling ornaments about their feet and their calls and their round tires like the moon, the chains, the bracelets, the mufflers, the bonnets, the ornaments of the legs, the headband, the tablets, and the earrings, the rings and nose jewels. Have you seen any of them wearing diamonds and rubies in their noses? They got those now, too. Used to have to go to India to see that, but now we've got it in the United States. The changeable suits of, oh yeah, there's a guy that is a professional uh, Chicago Bulls basketball player that dresses in dresses like a woman and does heavy eye mascara and puts a lot of rings in his lips and his ears and his tongue and everywhere and goes around in a, in a wedding dress. And he's about six, six or seven and uh, dyes his hair every kind of color. People just absolutely love it. Changeable suits of apparel, the mantles, the wimples. A lot of these are old King James uh, expressions for some of the things like looking glasses and some of the accoutrements and paraphernalia that women used. The crisping pins. I, what's that? A curling iron? I have no idea. The glasses, the fine linen, the hoods and the veils. And it should come to pass that instead of a sweet smell, there should be a stink. Some people think there already is because it's like some of these perfumes... Well, I won't comment. And instead of a girdle, a rent. And instead of well-set hair, baldness. And instead of a stomacher, like a cummerbund, a girdling of sackcloth, and burning instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword, and thy mighty in the war, and her gates shall lament and mourn, and she being desolate shall sit upon the ground. The point is that God is judging our peoples, and God's Word says He would raise up a work and that he would call and commission that work to preach the good news of his coming kingdom, which is the governing, ruling kingdom of Almighty God. And what is it going to do? The, the Protestant world, the Catholic world, the religious world, thinks only in terms of religious retirement. The concept of the separation of church and state is not merely a political tenet. It is also a deeply held philosophical belief that the two have nothing to do with each other. But they have everything to do with each other, and they will in the kingdom of God, because God is going to rule the world with a rod of iron. The average Methodist, Baptist, or Lutheran thinks that you just live this life, and you go, and there's the obituary. He was a member of the First Baptist Church. He was also active in the Civitans, and he uh, was for a while a Red Cross volunteer, whatever. He was 89, and he died, and he survived by so-and-so and so-and-so. Look in the paper today if you want to see what I mean. He was an upstanding member of the community. Well, they said over the beer when he died, he went to be with the Lord. He's gone to heaven. But that has nothing to do with all these evils that we see every single day around us in our country and with the country going down the drain, and with a rotten kind of a world that is waiting for our children and grandchildren out there. And God's Word has everything to do with that, and tells us that we are in training to become the ones who change it all, who become the ones that make this a wonderful, good place to live, and that rid this world of everything that is evil. And certainly you've got to start with art, literature, music, entertainment, 
and attack everything that has to do with the family structure and, and medicines and drugs and drug abuse and crime and just come right on down to all the problems that are extant in the United States today. I don't know if people who sink down into a little group of six, eight, or ten, or a dozen people that meet together and have no affiliation, because a lot of them have been burnt, and they're very careful. A lot of people are looking and they're searching. Well, I don't know which group. Let's see. Eeny, meeny, miny. You can't even say that anymore. Uh, that's a bad thing, because it used to have a racist connotation, that little poem that people would quote. But they're trying to pick and choose. They wonder, and they're saying, no, we'd better... We'd better just wait. What we'd better do is just not affiliate with anybody, but just believe what we believe and, and just receive the tapes and receive the booklets and, and really get a benefit and a wonderful blessing from all of that. That's wonderful. But is it doing the work? I am dumbfounded, frankly, that there weren't enough people in the fragmenting worldwide church of God when it began to back straight into the mainstream and to become only a shadow of its former self to where it is now completely unrecognizable, that when these other big groups began to form, it's hard for me to believe that someone, somewhere, somehow, didn't take the initiative to see that all of them could have formed into another different group and could have gotten a hold of those properties and let them just be sold and to go back to what is called, quote, the association but could have continued that university for the good and the benefit of all of the thousands of youngsters in God's church at large. I mean, the Sabbatarian, Sabbath-keeping, Bible-believing people that were the converts of the church over all these many, many decades. It didn't happen, and sadly, they've all gone and departed. They're winding down, and little by little, a little caretaker outfit is up there now that they close everything up and move the things out that they want. I don't know where they're going to store them. I don't know what they're going to do with them. For sale, a couple of full libraries of some of the greatest books and theological libraries you could ever imagine. For sale, tremendous amounts of office equipment and furniture. For sale, two colleges. It's just such a tragedy, and it's so sad. But somehow, somewhere, I guess God is going to prove to all of us, including me, that he can, if he needs to, to raise up rocks to do his work. I'd rather that it were I and that it were you and all of us to do his work but his work is going to get done. And God is not going to allow his church to sink down into a little group of social people who are just enjoying the Sabbath and not understanding the tremendous, desperate urgency of their calling. That what we are doing here every single day of our lives is preparing to be kings and princes and judges in God's soon coming kingdom. And just to be reminded of that from time to time and look in real terms at real life, such as the decisions that have been handed down by judges in various parts of this country in the last few days is, I think, very instructive.